I don't throw around the term soulmate very often, but today's guest has the distinction of being the closest thing to my movie soulmate. Not sure if there's anybody else in my life where I share such a cinematic shorthand. I can call her right now with an obscure movie quote, and she will know exactly what it is. She'll then smack the ball back over the net with a deep cut of her own. She's the kind of person who will text me on a random Tuesday and simply say, LA Confidential is a terrific film, and we really need to discuss. Completely out of nowhere, I'll send her a reply, and next thing we know, we're in a rabbit hole. Years of friendship clearly outweigh our time working together, but when we were colleagues, it was a very special time for me. And to this day, I still think about that experience with a smile on my face. She's Ruth Metzger, and this is Back by Popular Demand. Ruth, welcome Dennis. to my podcast. Thank you. It's so lovely to see you. Um, I got to tell you, I've been counting down the days till I had you on this podcast. And I think that's because I guess last fall, maybe like September, October, I felt like you and I were talking a bit about me doing a podcast. And you were kind of one of the biggest proponents of this notion, right? That's right. I remember uh, listening to uh, a podcast and thinking, you know, this is supposed to be Dennis and I on this podcast. It was a movie themed podcast. And uh, I think that's kind of how we got the idea going. Oh, we're going to reference that podcast. In a second. <laughs> I know what podcast you're talking about. But honestly, I want to thank you because you were one of the people that really encouraged me to do this. And for a while there, I was just kind of thinking about it. And then I realized, well, I actually want to do this. Um, and you and I were, were texting and speaking, I think, quite a bit last fall. And I think it's deep down because we probably both wish we were film critics, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, we probably should do our own version of the rewatchables. Let's be honest. That's the podcast that you're talking about. I'm going to reference the rewatchables a little bit later. Um, but I think this episode is going to be a bit of a time capsule. Okay. Um, and now it's time for me to, you know, say some lovely things about you. <laughs> there are only a handful of people that you work with throughout your career. I was thinking about this the other day that leave an indelible impression on you. Um, and I, you know, obviously from our, our working relationship, but really more about from our, from a friendship perspective, uh, you are one of those people and that is a very short list. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel great. I'm flattered. Thank you for saying that. I, I feel the same about you. Oh, thank you. I mean, I the time that we spent together, which we're going to get into in a minute, is very meaningful. Like it, it, I, I think about it regularly. Um, you and I still stay in touch, and I know that every once in a while we'll text each other and we'll go back and forth about some of that. Some of that time. Uh, before we get into that, um, I was thinking about you the other night as I was watching the Golden Globes, uh, which I have to admit was. A very strange telecast, very uninspiring. Uh, the Zoom thing really didn't work. I still don't know what Catherine O'Hara's husband was doing while she was giving her acceptance speech. If I were her, I would have been <laughs> pretty annoyed. Um, but it reminded me of the mid-90s, which is when you and I first met. And all of the phone calls that we had during, I guess, whenever we were watching the Academy Awards. Do you remember right. this? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. And they continued for years. Right. Yeah. And do you recall like how often you called me? Like it was a lot. <laughs> Probably, you know, five times an hour and something like that. <laughs> I was thinking as we were watching the Globes and we did admittedly text each other a little bit last Sunday during the Globes, mm -hmm. but it just, it, we really could have used text back in the mid nineties. I yes. think that would have been very helpful for you and me because you and I called each other 
you're probably right. I would say several times an hour, we were calling each other about whoever won, whoever didn't win, and how they got it wrong. And we also had an Oscar pool at the office. So we were comparing our, our choices and probably just the outfits, right? What do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, if someone made a stupid speech or if, uh, you know, there were bad jokes or good jokes or, yeah, we okay. were, yeah. <laughs> I miss those days. So I would say this. If there's anyone close to a movie soulmate, I would say you are it. Like, I feel like you are my, how do I put this? Like my cinematic equal. And I don't mean that in any sort of arrogant way, but you know, I'm a film buff. You're definitely a film buff. If anything, you're probably a bigger film buff than I am. And I've always felt that you were. And I have like this shorthand that you and I sort of created through the years that I don't think I have shared with anybody else in my life. I mean, my brother comes to mind a little bit based on certain things that we've seen together. But with you, I've never experienced anything like that before. Do you know what I'm referencing? Like, do you you feel the same? Absolutely. I do. I absolutely do. I mean, I'm touched hearing you say it like that, but uh, of course, absolutely. So if I like, I feel like I could call you when I'm 75 years old and just say the words, you know what I'm about to say. (laughs) Oh yes, I am pleased. And you will know what movie that is and what actor that is. Absolutely. All right. So tell our lovely listeners what I just referenced. Uh, So we're talking about a line from A River Runs Through It when the father in there played by Tom Tom Skerritt is his name, right? Tom Skerritt. Mm -hmm. Um, When he was talking to um, Craig Sheffer's character. Um, So when he was, he was pleased when he got his job as the professor. (laughs) So as was I, I cry every time still. At the University of Chicago, he got the he got the big job offer. Um, mm-hmm. That movie was on. I think I even texted you this like a month ago. That movie was on one night. It was late. I was about to go to bed, and I came across A River Runs Through It, which is a special film for both of us, mm-hmm. and ended up watching the entire thing. <laughs> of course, why not, Gina? Do you remember that I walked down the aisle to the score from The River Runs Through It? I do not remember this. Mm-hmm. You were the only one who knew, though. Okay. Um, I love that. You even moved up my list even further now because of that, <laughs> that, uh, that mm-hmm. reference. So mm-hmm. nicely done. If I said Karen to you and mm-hmm. I just shouted the word Karen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you would know what? Oh, we're talking about Goodfellas, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we quoted endlessly from Goodfellas uh, and among others, Fargo. Um, that was my next one. Okay. That was my next mm-hmm. one. I was gonna. I was gonna mm-hmm. give you the. We split that line. Oh yeah. Or the. You know how the f do you split a car? You f and dummy. <laughs> I want to get into why or how we met. I should say, but why do you think that we hit it off as well as we did? I mean, clearly we had a shared a shared passion for film and a, an obsession with film. Um, we we worked very closely to each other. I mean. We literally, we worked very close to each other. We were, you know, right across from one yep. another. Um, and we were working in close collaboration on these movie campaigns. Um, and not just nine to five. We were often working evenings, driving to screenings. We were working events on the weekends. You know, uh, we spent a lot of time together over those years, both in work and then as friends. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I was thinking, 
you're a nice guy and plain and simple. I like nice people. So that was another reason why I think I was drawn to you. What year was it that we met? Was it in 95? 95, I think it was right? 95. Yeah. And that's when I was, um, I was in DC at an agency and then you moved to DC for that same mm-hmm, agency. Mm-hmm. Um, that agency was at the time called Abramson Associates. I think that was the name of it at that uh, point. Although, it was, it was uh, Abramson and Ehrlich Mains. Oh, it was Ehrlich Mains at that yeah. point. And okay. we were the entertainment group. That's right. And we were in the entertainment division, which was down that long corridor at the end of the hallway. Mm-hmm. And um, I always kind of felt like the entertainment division was a bit of an annex from the rest of the agency. We Absolutely our, it was. Absolutely it was. Yeah. We yeah. kind of did our own thing. We kind we of lived by our own rules. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Very accurate. Mm-hmm. So. Tell everybody a little bit about what we did at Abramson. I mean, and specifically what your role was. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I did as well. But if you want to just give everybody a little bit of context sure. on what that agency was about. So um, movie studios, when they don't have a major office uh, in a city, which is most cities outside of New York and L.A., they hire local PR and ad agencies, PR firms, ad agencies to do the local publicity and advertising, um, promotions. And at least that's how it was done at the time. I'm not sure if it's exactly structured in that way now, but, uh, so we were in the DC, uh, office that handled campaigns for, um, uh, a number of, of film studios, big and small things from like Paramount Fox, MGM. We had some smaller ones like Samuel Goldwyn and we um, would create these uh, often very elaborate, uh, very comprehensive campaigns to promote the movies. We were, we were encouraged to do things that were really creative that would get, you know, coverage. And we were also, um, pitching uh, stories in the newspapers and working with critics and editors. And we were um, sometimes getting some of the talent in town, directors and actors, and then we would uh, take them around to different uh, locations to allow them to do interviews and shoots and things like that. Yep. So So I remember we, our primary clients, as you'd referenced, we did Paramount Pictures, which we Mm -hmm. lost. I want to say like shortly after you arrived, I think, or was it right before you arrived? I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. No, no. I, 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 don't, I didn't even remember that we lost it, but I guess, um, uh, no, I remember we did, uh, a number of Paramount things. We did the Brady Bunch movie. That was yep. Paramount, right? And, um, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Were you there? Were you, I, you weren't there yet. I wasn't there yet. I got the I got the Forrest Gump chocolates. There were a few left over, so I got a few boxes of those, but I, I didn't work on that campaign. I worked um, on Forrest Gump for what seemed like four months. Uh, uh-huh. Probably, I guess, like the summer before you got there. That was in 94. Uh-huh. Clear Present Danger. Worked on Braveheart. You were there for oh, Braveheart. Oh, I worked for, on Braveheart, right? Yep. 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 Oh, that's a good one, yeah. So you did mostly publicity and promotions. You dealt, you dealt right. with a lot of... Um, film critics in the area, which I'll get into mm-hmm. in a second. And I handled mostly the advertising. So just to give people some context, because you referenced newspapers a minute ago, newspapers were kind of the thing. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in <laughs> the no, mid nineties, no hard to believe where, where they are right. today, but back then in 95 and, and through probably, I guess the end of the nineties, I would say that, you know, newspaper ads were the kind of the, the dominant advertising strategy for all these studios. And they, they ran these big, you know, big film ads and all the, the Friday sections of the paper and Saturday and Sunday, right. and, oh, right. you know, we all remember opening up the newspaper to see what theaters 
the movie was going to be playing in in your area. So my job was to create those ads. So I had to figure out with the, with the with the client, which was based in New York, would tell us which theaters in the marketplace were going to be in the ads. Then I had to build on the computer a theater base, right? Do you remember this? Where oh, it actually yeah. was it was broken out by like DC, Maryland, Virginia. It told you which theaters were going to be in, you know, certain, you know, showing the showing the movie. Then I had to work with these ad slicks that the studio sent us, which was basically like the creative, the key art of the movie. Mm-hmm. I had a typeset the quotes that they would give us, they would fax us over several times a day, the different quotes that you yourself got from the local critics as well as, you know, national critics. And then I had to match the font that the studio sent us. Um, They would give us like a mock layout of what the ad looked like. I had to find the font, match it as best I could type it the exact way and have it fit in the different size ads that we have. You remember this? Absolutely. I remember you sitting there with your drafting tools and uh, I I was in awe. It seemed really like really intricate, uh, uh, complicated or stressful work, but, and, and it wasn't too, um, not, not too much time had passed afterward before I looked back on that and thought, wow, that was such an antiquated system. But it was, um, I mean, it w- wasn't at the time. That was how people did no. it. But but quickly it became obsolete. I mean, well, I had a drafting table, as you referenced. We had this wax machine where you had to put hot wax on the back of the ad slick so that it stuck to the, the actual oh cardboard. Oh, my gosh, right. Then we had a, um, I guess it would be like a red room, right, where you would go in and we had to shoot the ad with this giant camera that was inside and no one else could go in. You have to have the door shut and you I shot didn't remember that movie. part at all. Remember? Well, yeah, yeah. you had to shoot it onto film. And then we had this chemical machine where you actually had to then run that film through this chemical on this other piece of paper. And then you eventually pull the two pieces apart from each other. And that was the final slick that I had to send to the Washington post and the Baltimore sun and everything else. Unbelievable. I, I, I didn't even remember the part when you were shooting it. I thought, in in thinking back on it, I thought you were um, sending that the thing that you had created. I thought you were sending that straight out to the to the newspaper. So, oh, no, the little chemical room. And then we also had to buy the radio. And that was I remember um, everything was done by hand back then. I think I actually did radio buys in Excel, if memory serves. And I was given a budget right. and a, you know, a GRP goal for my client. And then I basically had to call all the reps and get their rates for morning drive and midday and so forth. I'm, I still remember some of the, the reps' names. I did a lot of business with WPGC, mm-hmm. and, uh, DC 101, and WHFS, which is no longer around. And oh, okay. and then I would like put together like my wish list of how many spots I wanted per day part. And then like we, you know, sometimes the studios would say, we will pay whatever it costs. I'm not sure if you remember this, but basically it was called bump rates where because if it was like week two of a movie, the movie did really well over the opening weekend. The, the studio wanted to maximize the interest and keep it going. So they would give us a radio buy to place for week two. And they would be like, we need to get on the air. <laughs> we don't care what it costs. Wow. And we will pay bump rates. Oftentimes, it was like three times the going rate that other advertisers at the time were probably paying. And we paid that just so that we can get them bumped off the air. <laughs> so... Wow. We can we can we can promote the movie for that second week. Crazy. One of my favorite things about that job back then was the um I guess you know we we did countless screenings. We did exhibitor screenings where we screened the movies for all the theater owners in the area. We obviously did press screenings and we did a lot of promotional screenings, but Talk to me about the press screenings. Weren't they like we did them at the MPAA, right? And that was a great screening room. I loved it there. 
I mean, that was our job, Ruth. Like mm-hmm. we would go. I know. I'm watching a movie. Uh-huh. We, would watch, uh-huh. we would watch a movie and like our, our workday really kind of started around 1230, right? Because mm-hmm. by right. the time the screening was over and then your job was to like meet with the critics, try to get some initial like feedback, right? That's right. So usually, you know, you would um, let them go back to their offices first and then um, we would follow up and find out if they liked it, see if there were any particular comments that they had, quotes they wanted to give. Um, and send those um, those comments back to the studio. But they weren't very forthcoming, right? If memory serves, I got better with asking questions over time. But that's true; they could give yes or no answers. But you know, I tried to you know pull things out of them eventually. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, was, it was awkward. I mean, I didn't even have to do that. That was your job. But like, I remember like being in in the lobby watching you guys try to go up to one of the film critics from the Washington Post, and you really wanted to get a sense on what they thought. But you know they would pretty much give you the Heisman extension, right? They just push her, they push you away. But you also had clients from the studios that really wanted you to get a read on mm-hmm. what they thought, right? So it was kind of a tough spot for you guys. You know, I can't remember if uh, it could be um, because, you know, we'll talk about this afterward, but I worked, uh, you know, at an, another studio for years afterwards. So I could be mixing up the two, but I, it could be that the Washington Post wouldn't give any comments at all. Um, is that possible? Was it, do you recall that or no? Very frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. I don't be. remember that. I just, I just remember that there was, there was one, obviously there were a few different critics at the, at the post, but one mm-hmm. in particular, I don't want to name names, but there was mm-hmm. one in particular who was actually a very good critic. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah. um, but he was not easy. Like he just didn't ever want to give you. Yeah. I remember him well. He was, he was, he was a good critic and I, I he may have been restricted by the newspaper policy. He liked um, you. Way, didn't he? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> I remember, so the screening thing, I got to just tell my, my listeners. So the very first time I ever experienced anything like this, because like my mind was blown with this whole press screening thing. Like I just didn't, I didn't even know that that existed. Like when I was in college at the university of Maryland, which is right down the road from DC, I, you know, I never knew that that's how critics saw movies. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, guess I just never thought about it. I guess I figured they saw movies at night like everybody else, or maybe the studio would screen the movie the day before or something like that. But I didn't realize that most critics see movies at 10 in the morning or what different times throughout the day, but a lot of these were in the morning. So I remember I had to cover uh, Dances with Wolves. The the editor at the school paper told me to, um, you're, you're, you're assigned Dances with Wolves. I had heard about it. It was a Kevin Costner's first um, directorial debut. So I remember on a Friday, I don't know why I remember this day as much as I do, but I had to get up early. I got on a campus shuttle bus. I had to take the bus to New Carrollton, which was in (laughs) suburban Maryland. That's where the closest Metro was. I got on the Metro and that ride was probably the the bus ride was probably 20 minutes, maybe longer. Then I had to get on a 30 minute um, Metro ride to downtown DC, walk to the MPAA, Finally watched Dances with Wolves, which Ruth was not a short movie, um, <laughs> a little over three hours. Mm-hmm. So I roll out of that theater around like one o'clock. And I remember I had a three o'clock class that I had to get back for. So I had to go back, reverse engineer all the way back, subway back to New Carrollton, shuttle bus back to Maryland, and then make a class. Then I had to go do that, all of that again. And I had to go back, do the shuttle, blah, blah, blah all the way down to the Uptown Theater, which you live near in mm-hmm. Cleveland Park. And they were doing the world premiere of Dances with Wolves that night. So I actually had to then cover that. So it was the same the, night? The same. This is all oh in the same goodness. day. Oh, my goodness. 
And I remember Costner pulling up in his, his limo and I saw Kevin Costner walk from the sidewalk to the, the front door, which was about eight seconds. And, um, and I, I had to be there and write some stuff about that. But like, honestly, an exhilarating day because it was like mm-hmm. the first time I had done sure. anything of the ilk. But at the same time, one of the longest days of my life. Like I remember when I got back to the dorm that night, I was completely just I was done. Like I would just like my friend was like, oh, how was it? I'm like, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I just need that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that sounds thrilling and exhausting. But I, I have a Dances with Wolves story, too. Let's hear it interested i um i i remember so i was watching dances with wolves i was at the theater um watching dances with wolves and i saw that in the end that it was orion pictures and i thought i love movies i'm gonna call orion pictures tomorrow and um again things were a little different back then but um i probably looked in the phone book or something and and um I called Orion Pictures and I said, I, I was a, I was a junior in college and it was my, um, it was my winter break. And I called them and I said, I'd love to be an intern this summer. And they said, okay, do you want to be an intern in international publicity or something else? I can't remember what the something else was. So I said, international publicity sounds good. Sure. Okay. And, and so I interned there that summer. Um, and you know, I don't, it, it wasn't that Dances with Wolves wasn't the only movie to, to, um, make me realize how much I loved film, but, but that was the real impetus to call Orion the next day. And actually I worked for Orion when I graduated. And then that led to MGM. Right. So at Orion, I was actually, they, um, they were getting smaller. Um, this is before they, you know, uh, fully died, but they, um, I was working actually as an assistant to the head of distribution, um, which was a, a, you know, totally different area. However, it was, it was a valuable experience. I ended up only being there for three months, but, um, because I got this other job at MGM that was more aligned with my interests. But I was grateful for that stint because I did learn a lot about how theaters make their money and, you know, what the process is of getting, um, getting movies, you know, to the theaters and how, how the, um, how the business is tracked. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was a good experience. But then after that, yes, I went to MGM. So Dances with Wolves is the center of our career universes is what basically what you're saying. Isn't that funny? Yes. That's yes. amazing. So let's real quickly, because we were just talking about the awards. Dances with Wolves won Best Picture that year, 1990. Controversial win. Um, wasn't it at the time? I, I, you know, I, I loved it at the time. I thought it was great. And I felt like, you know, he uh, he absolutely deserved it. Um, uh when I look back on it, you know, I don't know if I feel as strongly as about, about it now as I did at the time, but, um, but at the, I, I don't remember it being controversial. Maybe it was. Well, because I think it was the same year as Goodfellas, right? I'm pretty sure. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to Google. You can Google, but I got a podcast to run. So I'm not right. Gonna, but well, I think Goodfellas I think was 1990. The controversy was not a controversy, but I think there was a, there was a lot of backlash from from critics and people that thought that that was the year that Goodfellas should have won the Oscar. And I think if you ask me now, in 2021, I gotta I gotta say that the the controversy was warranted. Absolutely. I, I, liked Goodfellas. I mean, I I liked Dancing with Wolves a great deal, 
But I think, you know, Goodfellas should have won. What do you think? <laughs> oh, my gosh, of course. And uh, I'm looking it up. And yes, in 1991, Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas. So, I, I mean, I... I can't believe now that you're saying that, that I wasn't appalled and that they didn't stick with me for life. Um, Goodfellas, I, I, you know, I, I loved, right. You know, actually, um, am I, can I tell a story? Do we have time for a little story? Okay. Of course. Um, Goodfellas, I actually, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually saw parts of Goodfellas being um, filmed. Um, so that was 89. Um, I, wow. my, mm-hmm, uh, my friends and I had come back from the beach and we were going to friendlies and, uh, and, um, I saw a guy, I we, clearly there was a, you know, film shoot going on in the parking lot there. It was closed off, but you could, you could still go in a little bit. And I saw a guy sitting in a, a director's chair kind of thing. And I was thinking he was, he was in his, you know, costume. And I was thinking, he looks really familiar. Wait, well, how do I know this guy? What do I know? And then I realized, oh, it's Shoeless Joe. I just saw him last week in Field of Dreams. Um, and um, and so that scene was when Karen gets, uh, when Karen calls him from the phone booth describing how she got pushed out of the car. That's right. So that was that scene. So that, that was a great scene to witness. I mean, that, that phone booth was not really there. They put it there. Like, yep back, you know, info. Um, and, um, and then that night we went back again and watched them shoot on the block where Karen's uh, mother and, and father live where Karen's house. And, uh, unfortunately I didn't witness the scene when he beats up the, the neighbor, but, but we watched, um, the scene when he, the first night that he's with her, when he just walks her back to the house yep. and, you know, kind of shoves her off and Lorraine Bracco, um, stopped and talked to my ho- my group of friends for a long time, told us about how she got to this point, about her career. She was lovely. And when uh, Ray Liotta walked by from his trailer, we were all shouting, Shoeless, Shoeless. And he didn't, he didn't even look our way. So my friends took that as a snub. In, in, in hindsight, maybe he needed to, to focus for that. He was, uh, oh, he, was, he, was, he was being Henry Hill at the time. Was let, let the man do his work. Leave yeah, him alone. Exactly. So maybe, you know, it had to be, <laughs> it had to be that way. But I always felt, you know, when people would come to visit me in New Rochelle, where I grew up, I, uh, I would always t- say hi and show them, um, take them on the Goodfellas tour, even if they didn't like movies or anything. I just felt like it was an important thing to see. And then we could go to my house. But So the other... The other thing that we did a lot back then was we did a lot of, I guess, what they called word of mouth screenings, where whenever the studio felt like they had a movie that either needed a lot of extra buzz because it was a hard movie to market, or it was just a movie that was quite good and they knew it and they just want to get people to start talking about it before it came out. And again, this is all pre-internet. Um, I kind of I can't even recall like how many movies that we must have screened for these clients. You know, maybe four weeks in advance before the movie would open, mm-hmm. you know, like two or three times a week, not only in D.C., but Baltimore, where we had a mm-hmm. one of us had to drive to Baltimore several, sometimes mm-hmm. twice a week after mm-hmm. work to, to mm-hmm. go to the screening. Name some of the movies that we did. I, I, I was thinking about a movie that we had to screen. It uh, felt like a zillion times. Um, do you remember a family thing with uh, James Earl Jones and uh, Robert Duvall? It was yeah. an MGM movie. Yeah, I remember screening it over and over again at um, 
the train station theater there. Um, I can't think of uh, Union Station. Union Station, yeah. Um, again and again and, and again and again. <laughs> um, and sometimes you could, I mean, one of the things that we could do is, was sneak out and go to one of the other movies that was playing, if we were seeing it at a movie theater, and we did that all the time. And that's how, you know, we got to see lots of, of movies or parts of movies, which was great. Um, but that, that was one that I was thinking about that was just endless. But um, I was thinking about French Kiss. Oh, I didn't remember, remember that one. That one? Kevin mm-hmm. Klein, right? Kevin Klein and, and Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... Um, this was a good one, Birdcage. I love that. Yep. And uh, screen that one a great deal. Romeo yep. and Juliet, um, the the Leonardo DiCaprio version. Baz Luhrmann. I remember Office Space. Um, were you still there at that point? Or was no, that no, that would have been great. No, yeah. I mean, so I remember I mean, Office Space coming along, and you know, the, the first time I saw it was probably at one of those exhibitor screenings or press screenings, and I remember watching it and really laughing. And I recall this um, this moment where Gary Arnold, who was the film critic for Washington Times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the people that I always kind of felt like you could talk to. But he, I remember him coming out of the theater and he came up to me and he's like, does the studio have any idea how funny this movie is? And I was like, I, well, I think they do. But I said, I think they're worried that this is a movie that's going to be very hard to market. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. I remember that movie was had a very strange ad campaign and it did not do well. Like it was not a success. Really? No, no. It came out in like maybe the winter of 97, I want to guess. And I remember it not doing well at all. And that was one of those movies that became a cult classic just because of, you know, VHS and, and DVD. And it just, it found its life and its audience years later. Uh, our, uh, that thing you do also, I was thinking about that one. Do you remember Ooh, that thing Hanks you do? Movie. That's mm-hmm. right. We saw that That's one right. a lot. Yeah. Um, Independence Day. I have a good Independence Day story when you're when you're ready. But I don't know. I don't want to jump ahead. Is it Bill Pullman? Yeah, it's Bill Let's Pullman. Hear it. Let's um, hear it. Well, I remember uh, it was over the weekend, and I had just gotten home from you know uh, doing something out in the park, running, walking, something, and I got a call from our contact at Fox, and she said, um, "I know it's last minute." But the White House agreed to show Independence Day, um, to screen Independence Day. And so Bill Pullman and then the director and producer, um, uh, Dean Devlin and uh, Roland Emmerich, are going to come, going to fly in. And we need you to take them to the White House. And you're going to be getting a call from the White House. And so I was like, oh, my God, that's exciting. I mean, there was an ongoing thing where I felt like I always kind of wanted to meet the Clintons while I was working in, in D.C. And I there were a lot of close calls. And I thought this is my, my big moment. And the White House did call me. They asked me for my uh, you know driver's license information and background, thorough background check. And I picked these guys up from the airport. I was dressed up. We all were. And we went through several gates and we got to the entrance where we were going to be going in. And through the intercom, uh, the woman uh, said, you know, we, we never let in the publicist. And I was like, oh, oh, oh no. So I thought, oh, okay. And so I sat in the driveway at the White House for six hours while they had dinner and watched the movie. You were out there for six hours? <laughs> six hours. Mm-hmm. That sucks. I mean, the one good thing about it was um, 
they were so thrilled when they came out and they kind of want, I mean, they were just on such a high, it was such an exciting experience for them and they wanted someone to share it with. And so it was fun just, uh, hearing their stories and, um, you know, being, being there in that capacity, but, but, but yeah, that was a real disappointment. <laughs> well, I can't imagine. Well, there's, so there's two moments from that time of us working together before we, we can talk about um, you moving on. Cause I know you, you went off to New York after this, but, and I think you probably know t- these two, but I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up. So one was um, we got cast in the Robert Zemeckis <laughs> film contact. Do you remember? Correct. Yes, you and I, I and, and our boss Nikki, we were the three of us were cast as extras because they were filming Contact in DC, and uh, you know this was a big you know Robert Zemeckis blockbuster. And I remember um, we had to like show up down by the Capitol or something, right? It, but like at an ungodly hour, like we had to be down there at, like seven in the morning or six in the morning, right? Right. Yeah, super early. Maybe yeah, it was, like six in the morning. But I, but they the thing that cracks me up most about that whole experience was the our. Um, our audition, you know, was they wanted everyone to bring a, you know, black and white headshot to this place. And it was, it was somewhere in Virginia. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. And uh, we went to this place and we didn't, you know, we, we weren't actors. We didn't have any of them. We were, we went with one color picture, like a little, you know, four by six of the three of us. <laughs> and, and they cut it into three pieces and stapled it to our <laughs> application. We were like, this is all we've got. But somehow we, uh, we got the part anyway. I don't remember if they told us right then or if they called us. We got but, cast because uh, we because we're, we're awesome. Mm-hmm. And I remember us waiting down there. It was a brutally cold morning. Yeah. And I remember we were we were waiting on the the Capitol grounds, I guess, for what seemed like four or five hours that morning. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point we eventually got to see like Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey kind of walk out. Mm-hmm. Was it, mm-hmm. I think that was it was like a big scene at the end of the movie where they walked down these steps at the very mm-hmm. end after that. And the movie's not even that good. We did get paid, if memory serves. Yeah. And what did we do that afternoon? Do you remember? Well, I remember that we had had enough and we were thinking, all right, let's ditch this. You know, we've we've done our thing and it's too cold and it's kind of boring. So um, I think we taught, they gave us some some blue things to put on like a blue hat and scarf that I didn't realize that that now I see that in, th- in movies yep. and I think, Oh yeah, that's way I know, I know what they're doing. Green screen and all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I think we just kind of took off and tossed that thing, that stuff in the garbage. And then we went to the movies, of course, on our day off. <laughs> yep. We went um, to the movies and you remember what we saw? I only remember this because you told me uh, at one point that we saw swingers. Um, I had, I did not remember that, but uh, I did remember that we went to the movies. So of course, what do we do with our, our day off? We go to the movies, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, like I don't even think it was like a sanctioned day off. I think we came up and I might be wrong on this, but I think we came up with like an excuse of like why we had to, I think we came up with some sort of like convoluted reason as to why you need because like back at the day, back yes. in the day, like the three of us were never really should be out of the office very long because we were we, we all had a lot to do. <laughs> but yeah, like we left like the port intern or something like that, and maybe somebody else. But like I, I always felt like that was a, a wonderful day, but it was also I felt really guilty just because we we were out doing something that we shouldn't be doing. The other thing is Turbo Man, mm-hmm. Jingle, Jingle All the Way, which mm-hmm. was the. Oh, yeah. the the Arnold Schwarzenegger Sinbad romp from mm-hmm. the late nineties. Mm-hmm. And yours truly was paid to dress up as turbo man. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are photos of this that exist. There's also, 
there's also videos of this that exist. But I remember um, dressing up as Turbo Man, Turbo Man a few different times. And I had to stand outside uh, various DC metro stations and either you or Nikki were like within an arm's length of me. And we were giving away, I guess, like free passes for screenings of the movie and all that. Um, pretty humiliating that I did that. I got paid nicely, though. You were, uh, you know, by default when we there was someone had to get into, a, you know, a costume head to toe. It was you. So um, <laughs> at least they couldn't see your face. I mean, Ruth, we made like, I would guess you and I both made like 18 grand a year back then. Like we made very, <laughs> we made very, very little money to the point mm-hmm. that when I was, when they were telling me, Hey, we'll pay you, you know, triple time to go dress up as turbo man for, you know, a morning or whatever. And I remember right. even, uh, I was, I appeared on Fox morning news. Cause I think they sent out a crew to the Farragut North station. And I was interviewed by, I want to say Tony Perkins, who was like the, the weather guy. <laughs> at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just remember him going off on me and making fun of my outfit. Cause I had like this bad, like bike helmet, which was supposed to be like the official headpiece. And it was not a good costume. It, it got <laughs> traveled from city to city. And I was, I was the guy that was wearing it. And I just remember being kind of shredded on uh, the local mm-hmm. news. And uh, my brother thought that was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I bet. Well, um, you know, I, I, these are the things you do for your career, Ruth. So, all right, listen, I want to play a game of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to get into that in a second. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by The Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. That just makes me smile. Those who know me will tell you how much I respect animal rescue. And I adore my two boxer rescues, Sammy and Gabby. And trust me when I say that they love their waffle bed. My dog dad stock went up big time when their waffle arrived. Whether I'm watching a favorite movie, a baseball game, or listening to music, one of them is always lounging on their waffle, gnawing away on their favorite shark chew toy. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. The beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. It looks brand new every time I wash it. Look, you love your dogs. I sure love mine. And we'll pretty much do anything in the world for them. So get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night. And that should make you sleep better at night. Order them at waffleco.com. It's spelled just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Again, that's waffleco.com. And as a thank you to listening to this podcast, be sure to use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount on your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the pod. One of my favorite movies is Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm a big fan of Westerns. And I guess what I want to ask you is this. I think in our careers, um, and after DC, you moved up to New York, and that's when you had um, a really good run at Warner Brothers. But talk to me about, like, give me one one really good story of something that happened that you, like, one of those moments in your career that you were just particularly really proud of. Give me something that was not so good. And then maybe, is was there one that was kind of like a, as I call, you know, rock bottom, the ugly is there anything that comes to mind? I'm curious. I have a list, but I want to hear yours first. Are we talking about my entire career or just Warner Brothers or? 
anything you want. There were, you know, there were some really thrilling um, experiences. Uh, I remember when we did, and when we were at Warner Brothers and we did the Perfect Storm, uh, and we did a press junket, um, which I can explain if needed, but uh, a press junket where we had press from all over the country, all over the world, come to interview the uh, the actors in the film, the filmmakers. And those things could be in a hotel in, in New York City or it could be on location somewhere. So we went to Gloucester, Massachusetts, which was the, um, the city where uh, the story took place. Um, and it was it was summer or spring. It was warm, and um, we just had a great experience there. I was staying in a, a little inn, and I was there with. And there were only people from affiliated with the movie who were there, and uh, I was there with George Clooney and Diane Lane and Mark Wahlberg and Sebastian Younger, who wrote the film and the book, or who wrote the book. Um, and the director, uh, Wolfgang Peterson. And so just coming back to the hotel and kind of seeing those people just hanging around, you know, it was fun. And then uh, we, um, we, w- we went out at night to the Crow's Nest, which is a bar that's featured in the film. And again, Diane Lane's there and Mark Wahlberg and, and everyone I was working with. And we had a great time. And I also remember... Um, when we came back for the premiere, we had a police escort. I was in the limo with Mark Wahlberg and George Clooney was ahead of us and uh, or behind us. And the governor of Massachusetts was there. And we were, you know, it was a huge, huge crowd at, at the theater. And I remember thinking, to, you know, thinking, I can't believe here I am on this side of those stanchions, you know, on the red carpet with these people who everybody wants to meet and the whole state is going crazy for. It was it was a, a big, um, huge event for for Boston and for, you know, Massachusetts. So so I I, I was really excited uh, then. And then I have one more really good one that I wanted to, that I, I was thinking give me another about good one. one and then I'll give you a good one and then we can go into some not so good ones. <laughs> okay. There are plenty of those for sure. Um, with, uh, Harry Potter, uh, the first one, uh, I went to the press junket in London and, um, that was huge. You know, the Harry Potter, the, the, the first Harry Potter film, people were, you know, really waiting for that. And, yep. uh, that we, I went to the press junket and then, I um, went to the premiere at the tail end of that press junket and, um, you know, I met the whole cast. I was working closely with the producer and then I saw it all over the news the next day. And when I was at the airport, it was the cover of every newspaper. It was on, you know, everything from CNN to the local stations um, and the same thing when I came home. And it was just, I couldn't believe I, I had been there. I was very much a part of it. And so, so those were two you know, really exciting memories. My brother is going to be super jealous of that because he's <laughs> a huge, huge Potter guy. My good one is a quick one and it's recent actually. Probably this was, I want to say this was like three years ago. Um, when I was at National Geographic, I was working on the campaign for Genius Picasso, which was the the second season of our anthology show about geniuses. And that one was about Pablo Picasso and it was played by Antonio Banderas. And I remember having to go out to LA to present the marketing plan because that's what I did to the producers. So here we are, we're, we're in this, you know, really nice office on the Fox lot and it's me and my coworkers and we're, we're all sitting around this table and our, our president's there. And, 
And we had to present the campaign to Ron Howard and Brian Grazer because they were the, you know, they were the producers of, of this series. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing my presentation. I had a big role because I was talking all about the media and all that stuff. And I was sitting directly across from Ron Howard. Ron Howard is the nicest guy. He is as nice as you hope he is. Okay. I've so heard that. Yeah. Both and actually both of them. I mean, super, super friendly. So anyway, I remember as I'm talking, Ron grabs his phone and he's like, he's like acting like he's almost like a director. He's he's got his phone out and he's like moving around and he's like, I guess either rolling video or taking pictures. And it completely threw me off because like I'm, I could see it out of the corner of my eye that he's doing something. So you know, I powered through. As it turns out, he was taking pictures of the meeting and he was posting about it on Instagram. So when this meeting ends, right, we all say our goodbyes. They, they love the campaign. Everybody leaves. My phone is lighting up like I'm getting a million texts and I'm like, what what's happening? As it turns out, Ron had taken a picture of me presenting <laughs> and my coworkers. It was like two of us in the frame. And he posted that picture on Instagram. And he's like having a great meeting with the folks at Nat Geo, talking genius. And I am like literally in the middle of the photo. And that's great. And like, and obviously, I guess like friends and family members were all must must have been following him on Instagram. And like my phone lit up to like, do you realize that you are on Instagram and you are on Ron Howard's handle right now? I'm like, I I don't know what you're talking about. So then I obviously went and checked it out and and the whole thing. But that was one of those like really fun, completely surreal. Never, never going to happen again. Kind of moments, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. That would have been thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> so give me, give me something um, that's not so good. Like, was there, was there a moment in your career? It could be, it could be in New York. It could be at Warner Brothers. It could be anywhere. Something that was like, you know, wow, that's not good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of of one thing in particular. I mean, you know, with the when we were handling, um, that's, that was the term used for, um, taking care of, uh, the celebrities, um, and the filmmakers when they would come to town handling. So when I was handling someone, um, you know, I could never call it, uh, whether or not it was going to be a good experience or not. People who I thought for sure were going to be great could be, you know, terrible. And people who, um, I expected the worst from ended up being lovely. So, um, you know, I mean, I can, I don't want to name names, but, you know, there were, there were a couple of, um, there were not more than a couple. There were, it was almost like, I would say half and half, you know, Really? I mean, sort of, I mean, it was, it was, uh, a lot of people were really difficult, um, in all different ways. You know, some people were just really nervous about doing publicity, understandably. And so they may not have been at their best, but other people were, you know, prima donnas or, um, you know, just challenge, so challenging, uh, challenging personalities. And, um, you know, there, there were a few in particular that really wore me down, um, because often you were with them, not just for an afternoon, but maybe a week. Um, and I remember one in particular was just having his people call me, you know, five in the morning, we were getting home in the middle of the night as it was and, uh, nothing, nothing, uh, worked for them. It was, everything was a complaint. And, and this, this actor was very kind of, uh, spoiled. I just, uh, this is exhausting. So over time, I actually felt like, um, 
being with the celebrities, while initially it had been really exciting, afterward I started to feel like that was something that I uh, kind of dreaded in many cases. The thing that that I loved was getting to know so many editors and writers, uh, not not film editors and writers. And I mean, the the context that I had when I was pitching stories, yeah. and they were to me just. Uh, often really smart, really interesting, um, and uh, they were the celebrities to me. No, I, I used to tell my family that too because, like, they would always get you know, my dad, my mom would ask me a lot of questions about these different campaigns I worked on and all the different people you got to meet, and you know, they all kind of got you know swept up in in the celebrities of it all, and and there was a lot of it that I thoroughly enjoyed through the years. Obviously, the time that you and I spent together, it, some of the best memories of my career, quite frankly, but. There are there are the negatives. I would say, you know, I'll give you one bad and ugly. It's probably the same story. But I remember um, moving to New York. This would have been, I guess, in 2000. And I got a job at Artisan Entertainment, um, which is no longer around. Artisan eventually got bought out by Lionsgate. But it was at the time a really major indie because they had done Blair Witch Project. And that was a movie um, which made a a fortune. Um, on a very small budget. So it put them on the map. They hired me to be the manager of media and research. So my job was not only to oversee, you know, the media campaigns and the advertising, but also doing um, focus groups and test screenings and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, fall of 2000, I haven't been on the job very long. And we had to do a test screening for a Steve Martin movie called Novocaine. I'm not even sure if you remember this, but he played a dentist. Very strange movie very dark. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it, yeah, it came and went pretty, pretty quickly. But at the time, you know, this was a big screening because like, this was the first time that we were showing it to anybody and it was a rough cut. And, you know, Steve Martin was there. He showed up in a floppy hat cause he thought that would make him blend in. And our, our president was there and he's walking around with his Blackberry cause Blackberries were a big thing in 2000. And I, so anyway, I was there, you know, everything is going well. The people are lining up, they're getting into the screening and then I'm sitting in the back and then the film breaks down. And, you know, as, as somebody that's gone to a lot, a lot of these movie screens on your own, I'm sure you know what that's like. So especially when you've got the talent and the audience. So I quickly instinctively stand up and I'm like, I've never been in this theater before. I don't know where the projection room is. Clearly it's on another floor, but um, I, I, I run, I find an usher. I'm like, where's the projectionist? He shows me where to go. So I go to this door. I start running up these stairs. And I turn around behind me. Steve Martin is right behind me. Like I thought he was going to run over me. <laughs> and he wasn't like, he wasn't mad at me. He was just like, he, he had the same thought. Like, where's the projectionist? We got to get this fixed. So he goes up. He's like, you got to get this fixed. He was very nice, but he's like, we got to get this fixed. So they finally get it fixed, which took about 20 minutes. And I've got the, my coworkers are very upset. They're like, what's the status? I'm like, I'm sorry. Like I, <laughs> this wasn't my fault. The movies break down. It happens. So anyway, the movie ends. We, we do the Q and a afterwards. There's always a moderator. They ask people what they think. They hand out the note cards. People get their pencils and they have to fill out, you know, you've seen these, I'm sure where they have to fill out what they liked about the movie and the whole thing. So my job was to collect all the cards. So I got all these cards. And normally what would happen after that is you take those back to the office, you make copies and you send them out to the filmmakers and Steve and and whoever else that needed it. And I was told at that point in time that Steve wanted them right away. Like he wanted the, the, the cards that evening. And at this point it's like, you know, 1030 or whatever it is. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, so you need to go make the copies. I'm like, okay. 
So I go out. We're in the middle of Tribeca. I go out. It's it's pouring rain. I don't have, I don't have an umbrella. And I have to now find, this is in the era of Kinko's. So I have to go find a Kinko's. I had to ask somebody, is there a Kinko's around here? Because you know that they're always open. So I finally find a Kinko's. I had to go in and I explained to the guy, I got, I got to make these copies. And of course, the copies didn't come out good because everybody was using pencil and they weren't right. using pen. So they right. didn't really, like, translate very well. But I made the copies the best of my ability. Took them, I had to take a cab to the hotel that he was staying at. I left them with the concierge and, and my part of this transaction is over. Two weeks later, Blair Witch opens. Blair Witch 2, I'm sorry. Blair Witch 2, which was a sequel that they had fast-tracked without a script. Piece of garbage. That movie opens, does not do well, as you can imagine. I get laid off the day before Thanksgiving. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like... You know, and this was a job I relocated to New York for from D.C., from the job that you and I were, were, were spending time in in D.C. I moved to New York and I was on that job for, I, I guess, maybe four months, maybe five months total. And I had this horrible evening with the Novocaine screenings. I felt like I was getting a root canal. I remember I, as you're talking, I, I remember one one little thing that that is, is you know, um, kind of in the same realm, um, very kind of minor, but, um, I remember there was a director, I won't say which one, but, uh, he was, I really liked him personally. I, I did not like the movie. Um, but it was a big movie and we had done a lot to publicize and promote it. And, um, he was in New York and I don't remember why, but he couldn't get a hold of a newspaper. So he called me directly at my office and he asked me to read him the review in the New York Times. You had to read the whole thing? <laughs> which was a bomb. And I was I had to read him the whole thing. And and I used to I used to know off the top of my head what exactly what it said, but there I mean they slammed this film and I was reading it, you know, to him. It was awful. That was terrible. I still work in entertainment, marketing, media, whatever you want to call it, but you don't. Um, you took a you know you took a big pivot um, obviously, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But what is it? What led to the decision? I guess is my question of you finally hanging up the entertainment cleats and just going into an entirely different direction. What led to that? You know, I mean, I I always loved movies. Uh, I, I loved and love love film, um, and I never thought I would tire of it. I couldn't I couldn't believe when people would leave this this job for yep. something else. I I couldn't understand that. Couldn't bend my mind around it. But we. Um, after I was, I had done it for eleven years. Um, I started to feel like it, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the work I was doing was repetitive. Um, it was kind of, you know, the same routine, and you would have had to go about promoting film and um, same contacts. And um, I was getting tired of the of working with the celebrities, as I said, um, and. I started to feel like, do I really want this to be my life's work? Um, I can still enjoy movies, even if I'm not working in this field. And I also was, I also felt like upward uh, mobility was limited and um, it would, I would have to wait it out for a long while before I got promoted again. And um, I just, 
I thought, and even if I did, is that really what I want to do forever? It was also really stressful. I mean, uh, it was like white knuckle stress, you know, and working till very late all the time, increasingly more stressful depending on the personalities. I mean, there you were, you had to appease these, you know, tremendous egos in in Hollywood. Um, and uh, I I didn't know if that was sustainable, um, but. Um, for somebody who revisits every decision they ever make, big and small, I mean everything, it's, uh, it shocks me that I never looked back. When I was actually ready to go, I was ready to go. And yeah. I left and I'm doing something very different now. Um, I'm an occupational therapist and uh, with a specialty in hand therapy. And uh, I often, you know, when I'm working with my patients, think I can't believe I, I found this field that's kind of obscure and it suits me. It suits this, this phase of my life well. Um, and I, I, as I said, I've never looked back. However, I will say one thing. When I, I saw that someone who I had worked with uh, back at MGM, she friended me recently on Facebook and I saw that she was a member of the Academy. And I was like, oh, oh, that hurts. That hurts. <laughs> that could have been you, Ruth. That could have been me. That, you know, that I would love to be a member of the Academy. So I just felt like that 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 was a one, honestly the only time where I thought, oh, I missed out. But um, it took me a while after I was in the field, like uh, like a year to kind of decompress and get some perspective about what was important in life. Well, and, I mean, listen, I, I applaud you for, and I've always <laughs> felt this, I applaud you for going, you know, following your heart and doing something differently and certainly doing something that helps people and that's meaningful. But um, and given the amount of changes this industry is going through right now, which is, as you know, significant, do you miss any, any of it? Like, is there anything part of entertainment that you still kind of like wake up some days and wish that you were still doing, or is it completely out of your system? I don't. I mean, I, I still love movies. I still, you know, obsess over films and binge and uh, you know, love to talk about movies. But I, um, but no, I don't miss being there at all. And in in that in that field, uh, as I said, with that one exception. And um, as I've had now that I have kids, um, there were times when they were younger where I. I thought, um, would it have been nice if I were working still in the studio and then I could maybe introduce them to one of these stars or I could get autographs for them or something. But luckily I still have friends for a long time and still do in the field of, you know, you and, and the people who I worked at Warner Brothers are very good friends. And, uh, so they've hooked me up a bunch when I, when I, I made the, the rare request. So. Well, maybe maybe this podcast that we're on right now is is another platform for you to talk about movies because you and I have joked about that. So we both like the rewatchables. Um, I will admit I am insanely jealous of the rewatchables. I'm in, I'm jealous that there's you know Bill Simmons and some other guys part of the ringer that talk about movies a couple times a week. And I, whenever I listen to that that show, and I th- I have a feeling you feel the same. There are times that I feel like they completely got it. And I'm like, yep, they they got it. I was waiting to see if they were they were going to reference something, and they they referenced it. And I'm like, good, well done, well played. And then there's other times when I feel like they completely missed something. And I, at the end of the episode, I just wish I could call somebody. Right. 
<laughs> well, that's how I felt when I called you when we were listening to uh, Spotlight. You know, I thought, right? and there, there, I need, I needed to get it out and and add to it. So uh, I completely understand. That's how I feel too. That that should be our podcast. So if there is, I want to let you go. But if there was, if we, you and I eventually get back on on this podcast and we do an episode where we talk about a movie and we'd have to figure that out, what movie that is. Um, and obviously, we don't want to rip off the rewatchable, so we would need to do our own thing. But is there a movie or two that you feel like are just like ripe for us to talk about in a future episode of this podcast? I made a list, oh, and I could not fantastic. stop. And I couldn't. I could not stop at three. So I have to Let's disregard that. I have to disregard that. So um, some of these may already have been on rewatchable. So you know, I. Um, so I'm not Understood. sure because I, I don't listen to it religiously. Also, um, some of these um, are obvious. So I'm going with some, some obvious ones and some less obvious ones. Okay. So, um, I mean, Goodfellas always, you know, and, and River Runs Through It, I, we could always talk about. Yep. Um, we have kind of gone the rewatchables route, you and I, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, these are, I'm still in the obvious category, so you, you have to give them more than a couple. Uh, LA Confidential. And then in the less obvious ones, um, uh, Last King of Scotland. You know, I've never seen that. Oh, that movie uh, is. Don't hate so me. Don't get, don't get mad. Good. You, okay, well, you must in preparation okay. for a, a thorough discussion. Yep. Um, I thought broadcast news might be fun, you know, yep. especially since it was in DC and it was Absolutely. such a good film. And Moonstruck, Jerry Maguire, uh, The Insider. I love Al Pacino and The Insider. Ooh, so. That's a good one, Michael Mann. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, um, these are these yeah. are all great movies that I would love to talk about. Um, I have a few, and then um, mine mine's a weird list. I've got High Fidelity. You Excellent choice. I thought about. Did I see that? Are you kidding me? I'm, I mean, a hundred times. I love that movie. I, I especially loved it then. You know, it was really because we were that that age. And um, the Limey by Steven Soderbergh. That's on my list. I've got Moneyball, which I know you're a big fan of because you've you've texted huge me fan, it. huge fan. I love that movie. I, I, that's good. Excellent, excellent choice. And then I've got um, Out of Sight, another Soderbergh film mm-hmm, with George Clooney. Mm-hmm. I'm really mad I didn't get Moneyball. Uh, darn it! <laughs> well, you actually—I think it was like a year ago. I remember you texted me, texted me one day, completely out of the blue, and you're like, "Moneyball is awesome." And I and I, <laughs> and I and I and I and that's what you do. Like you just send me like random texts like that, which is what I love about you. And and I love that movie. And I I don't think at that time I knew that you liked it as much as you did. Mm-hmm. So then obviously that led to like a 24 hour text right. marathon of, <laughs> of me and I breaking down right. Moneyball. Right. So. Excellent choice. Yes. Good stuff, Ruth. Um, clearly, uh, we have a lot more to talk about. I have a feeling. So we're going to have you come back as a uh, as a future correspondent. Really do appreciate you coming on today to share your thoughts. Um, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. It was exciting. All right, Ruth. It was great to see you. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>